You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach, and I do not have a kid in school this semester, and yet my body is still so hardwired to the school calendar. I feel this kind of crazy urgency to finish up my work, turn in my papers, write that exam, talk to the dean, pack. I don't know. I'm not doing anything like that. But my brain and my body think I am. It's weird, right? Any of you feel that way? Let me know. I hope I'm not the only person of a certain age who feels this way. But I digress. I've been eager to speak to today's guest, writer and editor Kim France, for a while now. And I'm thinking of her right now because her blog is called Girls of a Certain Age. A certain age is a certain age. We know it. We don't need to be told what it is. But first, let me give you my five of the week. Number one, generosity. Just after we finished last week's podcast, I had a V8 moment. I forgot that I wanted to mention the generosity of graduation speaker Robert F. Smith, the billionaire investor who spoke at Morehouse College's graduation, but his excellent news that he and his family had decided to pay back every single outstanding student loan for the members of the class of 2019, yes, he did, sort of drowned out whatever else he said in his speech. Go forward, have a good time, be kind to people. I don't know what he said. What he really said was, I am going to take care of all your debts. You are my class. He didn't even go to Morehouse College, one of the finest of the historically black universities and colleges in America. He's a graduate of Cornell and the Columbia Business School. He runs something called the Vista Fund, and he said... On behalf of the eight generations of my family that have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. This is my class, 2019, and my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Is that the greatest? I love that. He said, I know my class will make sure they pay this forward, and let's make sure every class has the same opportunity going forward because we have enough to take care of our own community. Incidentally, Robert Smith is the first black man to sign Warren Buffett's giving pledge, which I believe suggests that billionaires give at least half of their wealth away in their lifetime. I think he's a great guy. Number two in the feel-good department is hmm, generosity. Now, you don't have to be a billionaire to be a giver. Another case in point is a barber named Courtney Holmes, a guy in Dubuque, Iowa, he had the idea that he would give free haircuts to kids who would read to him. He has books for kids of all ages in his barbershop, and he thought it would instill some pleasure in reading. It would be like a contest in a way. If you read a little book or a chapter to him while you're getting your haircut, you win a free haircut. You win because you may be interested in the book you're reading, And Mr. Holmes wins because he knows he's doing something great for his community. Now, Mr. Holmes is receiving unsolicited donations from strangers and people who've read about him, as well as boxes of donated books for the kids. So that story made me feel good. Number three, the U.S. Constitution. See, I'm going big this week. 
I saw a play in New York last week called What the Constitution Means to Me. I dare you to find an evening at the theater that sounds more like a homework assignment than this, more or less. It's a one-woman show starring and written by Heidi Schreck, who spent her teens giving speeches with just this title at Elk Lodges and Kiwanee Lodges and stuff all over the Northwest and Midwest. With great presentational skills and confidence, she won enough money to pay for her entire college tuition. As she jokes, a state school, but still. So the play is 15-year-old Heidi giving one of those talks along with 48-year-old Heidi of today. And today's Heidi feels disenfranchised by the words she has come to care deeply about. Her own feelings of disappointment and despair are pretty raw and very moving. She cried, we cried. As a bonus, everyone gets a pocket-sized copy of the Constitution. Maybe after we read it, we should send it to our lawmakers, make sure they read it. We can highlight it if they're lazy, which some of them are. Number four, Levi's 724 high-waisted jeans. They're like butter. Now, seriously, I live in jeans, which is something that Kim France and I are going to talk about because some fashion experts think that there is an age at which you should not be wearing them. But so far, I feel I haven't reached that age, even though I've been told I have. But but let me not get ahead of myself. I found these jeans online. I don't remember where. If it's on Kim France's blog, Girls of a Certain Age, then I owe her a commission. But I think I didn't find it through her. I think I found it all by myself. I like the silhouette. When I went to Levi's online to buy them, they were on sale. And then I paid even less than the sale price. I don't know how that worked, but it was good. I seem to know what I can wear at this point. When you're a certain age, you should know that. And I love these jeans, so I'm recommending them. They're high-waisted. Why did I go along and wear low-waisted jeans for 10 years? I mean, that's a disgrace. That's not right. But I did. We all did. You couldn't even find high-waisted jeans for a while. But anyway, seven twenty-four, and they seem to be on sale. And number five, Koyo non-dairy yogurt. Finally, I found a non-dairy yogurt I can eat without that kind of fear that it's all, <laughs> it's all going to be horrible and have that thick non-dairy, I don't know, nutty... I don't know. I love dairy. And if you're not supposed to eat dairy, which I guess I'm not supposed to do, the non-dairy yogurts all are sticky and gross. This one is good. I buy it plain, no no flavoring. I put my own jam or fresh fruit in it. I like it. I just bought a lot because like all those indie bra companies that spring up online, I'm afraid that non-dairy yogurt companies are not going to be in business next week. And speaking of online fashion... Kim France is here in the studio. I've been dying to talk to her for this show. She is the creator of the blog Girls of a Certain Age, to which I am slavishly addicted. I read it. It's five days a week or four days a week? Five. Five. Yeah. Five days a week she does this since 2012. And you probably know that Kim was the founding editor of Lucky Magazine, one of the few living people who 
Cy Newhouse allowed to start a magazine and stay with that magazine in his tenure running Condé Nast. So I'm sorry if that was a little too inside, but I say that with tremendous admiration. Welcome, Kim. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled that you're here. I have so much to talk to you about. And I want to start with the idea that once upon a time you worried that clothes make you look fat or or unflattering. And then there's a moment in a dressing room, and I've been there, maybe you have, I'm not sure, where I start to think, oh, I'm too old for this. Mm-hmm. Tell t- tell us about that, because that's obviously, your audience is somebody who wasn't born yesterday and wasn't isn't in her 20s, I don't think. You know, I remember when that moment happened for me, and I was at home, and I tried on a black Isabel Morant midi dress, mini dress rather, with um, floral embroidery. And I adored this dress. And I tried it on and I looked in the mirror and I was like, "Uh uh-uh. Like suddenly I looked like a little girl playing dress up in her mommy's clothes. Like something was completely off. And I knew that was it for me and short hemlines. Yeah. Yeah. And how long ago was that? Was that before you started the blog? That was before I started the blog. That was about 10 years ago. I was about 45, 46 when I gave up mini Minis. skirts. So I, they had a nice long run. But I think it's I think it's okay. I think transitioning from one style to the next is a perfectly fine thing. I also think hanging on to if you know you love ripped jeans and you think you look fantastic in them by all means. Like even at 50, 60, 70. I mean, I picked the example that I like the least on women after a certain age, ripped right. jeans. I feel like ripped jeans really are for the kids. When I see pictures of Goldie Hawn, I, I, I immediately flashed on her when you said older women dislike ripped jeans. I picture her in ripped jeans and some kind of tank top and a lot of plastic surgery. And I feel like, who is she fooling? Nobody. You know, Carly Simon had a great line, and I wish I knew it verbatim, but it was basically about how she knew when the moment came for her to step aside and let the younger women be the sexy hot ones. Yeah. And I think it's it's become really resonant for me in recent years because it doesn't mean that you're any less sexual. It doesn't mean you're any less attractive. It just means it's time to let the kids do what the kids do and, right. and, and move into a different phase. And just because your upper arms aren't what they were when they were 30-year-old upper arms doesn't mean you're a total loser. No. No, not at all. I mean, it it makes you feel like a loser, certainly a lot of the time. I actually just looked through my my dress rack in my closet and thought there are a lot of sleeveless dresses there. How did that happen? Um, Uh, Okay, it's tough being a girl of a certain age in the summer because we are, many of us are self-conscious about our upper arms, and yet it gets hot. And what are you supposed to do? Wear a shrug all year? I let my freak flag fly. I just wear my sleeveless tops. I think if I I'm if I offend someone or or scare children, so be it. <laughs> they weren't smart children anyway. <laughs> they weren't exceptional children. Um when you started this blog, you were kind of er- it was early on in the blog world. I mean, people forget that Facebook is only commonly used about 10 or 11 years ago. So you started this in 2012, I think? 2012. And did you think it was going to be a long-lasting business? 
or did you think it was just going to be a way to share your ideas? At the beginning, I thought it was going to be a way to share my ideas. I kept um, I kept mentioning story ideas or things that were on my mind to friends, and they were like, why don't you write about that, Kim? And so I finally realized that this was the venue for me to do it. But no, I thought it would just be a fun way. I thought maybe I could eventually make money on it, but that wasn't my first thought when I started doing it. Well, in a way, you're very progressive in the world of magazines and shopping because Lucky was really more about shopping than about fashion in a way, was it? It really was. And that was the whole idea, was to create a magazine that was democratic in its approach to fashion, which is a topic that so many women are so afraid of. And my thought was, I feel I'm a magazine world insider. I've never worked anywhere but in magazines. And um, when I look at magazines, women's fashion magazines, I feel bad about myself. And I know the artifice that goes into it. I know what a model looks like when she shows up at the shoot. I know how much retouching goes on. I know all of that. And still, it makes me feel bad about myself. And I wanted a magazine that made women feel good about themselves when they were done reading it. Well, I I told some friends that I was seeing you today, and they said, oh, I love those tabs. Oh, yeah. And we all did. And uh, for those who are too young to remember what Lucky Magazine offered, in addition to stories about shopping, you had pages of adhesive stickers where you could take one, like a post-it note, like a bookmark, and say, want it, want it, need it, wish list, maybe, right? Different categories of need, want, et cetera, covet, lust, Yes, those were very popular, and I knew that we were maybe on the road to becoming successful when a couple of months into the magazine's existence, my then sister-in-law told me that she was at the gym and saw one of the Yes stickers going around on the treadmill. (laughs) How fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that, uh, I mean, yes, that's like having somebody recognize you on the subway or something, right? That is great. Well, so as a magazine insider... You have witnessed the kind of death knell of print magazines. Retail, what is going on there, it feels like the death knell also, except it's confusing when you see a place like Hudson Yards, which is New York's newest, most glamorous, most high-end mall, and we are not a mall city, or we hadn't been until now. now. Uh, I went in there for the first time the other day to have lunch with some friends, and the place was pretty crowded, but the stores were totally empty. So retail is going through a bad moment, isn't it? I think retail is going through a very tough moment, a lot of transition. Do you think it's it's sort of going to be this way and worse for a while? Do you think Amazon and other online purveyors have just stolen the thunder of the experience? I think they have. They've made it so damn easy to shop that way. They've taken a little bit of the adventure out of shopping and a lot of the fun, but I think it's a sacrifice a lot of people are willing to make for convenience. There is something, though. I mean, what do people, I guess if people come to New York, I'm thinking if I didn't live here and I came here, I would want to shop in New York. Yes. And those are the tourists who are in the stores. And the New Yorkers are at home pressing (laughs) buy, send, and return, right? I think so. And when you think about, I mean, think about a great neighborhood, like a formerly great neighborhood like Soho. How many great boutiques there were down there at a certain point in time? Really cute, quirky individual boutiques, and now they're just all gone. 
There was a store called If on West Broadway. Was It lasted a long time, that store. Yeah, and you would find things there that you couldn't find other places. And now it's a chain store. I mean, Soho, I don't even get Soho, Kim. Is Soho now a place to go if you don't have the cab fare to go to 57th Street or Fifth <laughs> Avenue? Or is it just a cooler environment with inf- for influencers? I don't think it's a cool environment at all. It feels every retailer there is a national retailer. Every, you know, the restaurants there are kind of barely existing. I, I, I feel like it's a neighborhood for tourists. I mean, it, I, I guess people who don't remember Soho in the 80s, in the 70s, there was no supermarket there. It was not a user-friendly neighborhood, but it also was a neighborhood that didn't wake up till midday. You would stumble. It, it was it was artists living there and galleries there and people who wanted to live in a loft space and not some uh, very constructed apartment. And it was just not like any other neighborhood. And New York was full of distinctive feeling places. And now there's a Starbucks everywhere or a you know what's everywhere? Face Stockholm yes. makeup or Benefit eyebrow salons or it used to be Benetton's everywhere and Gap's everywhere. And now it's just something else and altogether. And we thought that was bad then. We thought it was bad. Remember in publishing when USA Today was about to come out, we thought newspapers would be harmed. Mm-hmm. They survived, barely. But these neighborhoods have lost their distinction and their distinctiveness, and Soho in ways that is sort of most egregious because those who could afford it wouldn't have liked it when it was really Soho. Oh, no, not at all. There was a no-man's land back in those days. Right. Um, It's one of the reasons why I like living in my current neighborhood, which is the Lower East Side, because it still looks a little bit the way the city used to look. And the chains, you know, there's a Whole Foods, but the chains haven't really encroached. You know, it it, it feels still in a gritty way, definitely, the way the city used to feel. How many Stuart Weitzmans are there in New York? How many? I mean, it really has become, no no disrespect to him, if there really is a Stuart Weitzman, (laughs) but, but it does feel like you can always buy a pair of $600 shoes in New York. But New York doesn't feel like New York anyway to me. No, it doesn't. I I only got here in 1988. I started spending summers here when I was in school in 1983. And to me, the feeling of how the city has changed is so profound. It's so profound. And it doesn't doesn't encourage individuality in a way that it used to. The the only thing I'm encouraged by is I think if I was some kid, some 16-year-old kid, and I was from Omaha, Nebraska, and I was taking my class choir trip to New York, I would still find New York to be an incredibly thrilling place. Yes. The pace of it, the numbers of people, the famous sites that you've seen in your Instagram feed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And also, uh, I mean, obviously, people are dyeing their hair all colors, getting tattoos everywhere. So that, I guess, is the way people express themselves piercings tattoos and hair color although the really young kids are not getting the tattoos why is that it's just considered uncool i mean i'm 55 and i have tattoos you have tattoos i do i have that required 
when you when like was that a way oh was to, that required at one point no I wouldn't say so I didn't get my first one till I was 39 oh wow and then I got a cluster of them in my early 50s um, and I are you done with them or may you get more done for now done for now definitely done for now it's very addictive that's why people have so many you get one and then you just immediately it's not about the one you have it's about it's about the it's not about the ones you have it's about the experience of getting them and I found but it hurts um, it hurts a little it depends on where you get them if you get them near a bone it hurts a lot if you just get them on your wrist where all of mine are then it doesn't really hurt Wow listen to that also I think um, I know you went to Oberlin two things about that every young woman I've met who's at Oberlin in the last 10 years because I have kids who have good friends there has a no stud <laughs> is that given out by the housing office? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't a big thing when I was there. I was there so long ago, but I think it must be now a requirement. I, yeah. I, I have. I mean, no matter how unpierced they were before they got there, they all have it right in that little nasal spot that not right where the nostril meets the bridge. Very funny. And I want to talk about the word girl. Because mm -hmm. when you and my brother were at Oberlin, girl was such a loaded negative term. Obviously, you use it with great irony and, and affection. But tell me how you got to, go, to be from Oberlin at that time to writing about girls of a certain age. Well, I think that one thing I didn't have at Oberlin and that I loved Oberlin, but something there was not a surplus of at Oberlin was a sense of humor or a sense of irony about about the state of the world and about women and their place in the world. And I, I think I was very struck by girl culture in the 90s and how that sort of became a thing and a very interesting expression of feminism. And I remember a friend of my mother's saying to me, you know, we fought very hard for that word not to be used. And I was like, oh, I know, but our feminism is so superior and all the stupid <laughs> our things second I said. Wave. Yes. Our second wave uh, feminism is so much more trenchant than your first wave. <laughs> yes, we have it all figured out. And and but she was right. You know, she was right. But I feel like the it, it was just a name for the blog that popped into my head one day and it, it just felt like it, it it struck the right tone. The word girl to me is almost um I still think of I, I in my shorthand, if I were to speak to myself, which I don't like to do very much, but I would I would say, come on, girl, get it going. I, I don't think it's so terrible. I guess I wouldn't like it if the wrong person used it it's in all, the wrong way. It's all about context. Right. You know, if if some guy who doesn't promote women and, um, you know, is in a position of power and, um, you know, uses that word, then it feels like a put down. Right. But if, if women are using it with each other, it's like anything. You can get away with it. There, uh, th yes, I remember once when I was uh, looking for a radio home and a, a, a boss of a radio company said, so it's girl stuff. And that offended me. Right. But we can talk about girls and yeah. You no, you're allowed to be offended by that. I yeah. think that you know that was offensive. The the '90s uh, was it the '90s the sort of girl power the uh, Spice Girls and so on yes and the and the and and 
the beginning of girlishness as I saw it. Handbags, Kate Spade, uh, kind of enjoyment of cocktails and nail polish. I think Sex in the City had mm-hmm. a lot to do with it. I think there was that big bubble of, of pink that sort of showed up. And honestly, as somebody who grew up at a time when that was, as your mother's friend said, we fought not to use that word, I was so envious because huh. there is something joyful about putting on lipstick. There is something joyful and optimistic about putting on what we used to call fancy clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that those women, you know, they got it on the backs of all the women who worked before them for it, and so they'll never have the appropriate amount of gratitude for it. No, they never have thanked me for for one thing. And, you know, I always felt in my jeans and T-shirt that I was my daughter's big brother. (laughs) I always felt so lunky and, and tomboyish next to little girls who all have this you know, DNA that is attracted to pink and lavender and tulle and sequins. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah, I was never that kind of girl. I apparently didn't play with dolls. Mm -hmm. And I still think I look like Michael Corleone. (laughs) I, well, okay. I didn't play with dolls either. And once I did a story for CBS when I was on TV there, and it had to do with blondes and the semiotics of blondes, which is why I'm not still on TV, obviously. (laughs) And I wore a blonde wig and I brought it home and my kids all started crying and I realized I looked like Michael Caine in Dress to Kill. (laughs) (laughs) It put a blonde wig on me, I look like a man. I don't know. It it just is. Do you have um, a uniform and what do you think about women or girls of a certain age wearing kind of the same thing every day? I think it's great. I think that it simplifies life and also helps you develop your sense of style if you find a few key pieces that really work for you. I also believe that you should, they were actually, my commenters were just talking about this yesterday because I did a post on hippie girl dresses. Yes, you did. And one of them said, well, I usually dress very preppy. I do you have to stick to your style if you have a style? And everyone was like, well, no, that's ridiculous. Of course. you." So I, I believe it's important to you know, hue to your look, but then if you feel like throwing a wrench in there, doing that too. When I was uh, in the 80s, when I had uh, been on a very long book tour for the Preppy Handbook, there was a point at which I thought, I just want to wear black pants. I just want to wear leather. I just want to break out of this because I felt very pigeonholed. So someone sold me, I, you know, I'm uh, the worst purse. I I really have no style, (laughs) I I need to say up front. And someone sold me a very strange-looking, distressed black leather jumpsuit. (laughs) I bought it. Why would I buy such a thing anyway? And it was so hot. But I, I don't mean hot sexy. I mean heavy and hot to wear. And I realized it was a call for help. I don't think I wore it more than once. It cost a fortune at the time for me. And, you know, I felt ashamed in a way that I was trying so obviously hard to fight against what was my natural look and style and comfort, which was to dress like my brothers. Um, But there are times that I wish I could really mush it up more. 
Yeah, you know, I I dress more and more like a guy all the time. And there's, I, I, I actually remember when I was at Condé Nast where they set the bar very high every day for how you dress. Just think, looking at my boss at the time, James Truman, who was always wearing a great suit with a button-down shirt with no tie, and just thinking, I want to dress like James. I want to do that every day. Yeah. Which are the guys at GQ who always look great in their suits. I just want a closet full of suits. Yeah, that would make life easier, wouldn't it? So much easier. So what are we waiting for? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. I mean, I dress like a guy now. Most of the time, I'm wearing a button-down shirt and jeans or chinos. And I think you keep things interesting with accessories. You know, the most stylish women I know all have uniforms, and they all keep things kind of interesting with accessories. There was a woman in my son who had a, a son in my son's class at school who wore every day a red and white striped Breton T-shirt, a pair of denim overalls, and fisherman shoes, jelly fisherman mm-hmm. shoes, every day, hmm. every day. And I used to think, that's weird. But now I just think it was such a show of strength. Oh, yeah. Not being swayed by what was stylish or not stylish. And she knew what she liked. Yeah, no, I think about um, Tony Goodman, who was an editor at Vogue for years. <laughs> Tony Goodman, sorry. And um, she she had maybe 10 pieces she wore. A turtleneck, white jeans, khakis, I think. And she always looked fantastic. And you always knew it was her. Yeah. If you saw her from the back or the side. Yes. Because it was her clothes. (coughs) Excuse me. At what point in somebody's, let's say, style journey, should should they know who they are and what their look is, do you think? I think it always changes. It's it's different for everyone. I've no I know women who knew how they dressed at 20, you know, and never really deviated from it much. And I don't feel like I developed a real sense of style until I left Lucky. Really? Truly. Yeah, I would say that at Lucky I was still very influenced by having to look a certain way in the building and wanting to wear certain designers and then I guess my last couple of years of Lucky I found a few designers who worked for me. I wore them a lot. And I stopped caring as much about wearing the right thing. Do you feel like every day you have to be an exemplar of your blog? Not even a little. <laughs> Not even a little. And I do I do occasionally get get recognized or stopped and and I realize I, sh- I and maybe people you know see me and 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 are like, that's Kim because most of my readers are in New York. Um, so maybe I should pay more attention to that. No, but I don't. no, no. I was thrilled to see what you had on. I mean, I feel like I'm also dressing like a guy, and I always try to wear earrings or something, but that doesn't help. <laughs> and maybe more makeup, but that doesn't help. You know, it's it's a funny thing that maybe girls of a certain age don't have to be as frilly and. Well, frilly looks crazy on women when you get a little older. It just looks, it reminds me, uh, who's the actress? I can't remember, but some, I can't remember, so I won't tell the story. But it was an actress who was well into her 60s who got married in a frilly white wedding dress, like her fifth or sixth marriage. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, she's crazy. (laughs) Well, five or six marriages is crazy, too. I guess that's the triumph of hope over empirical knowledge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um. When Zara does something crazy, like make a shirt that has stripes and a yellow star, or was that 
Urban Outfitters. Or, that may have been Mango. But, or Mango. But it might have been Zara, too. So there are there are moments, political moments, that have been um, uh, played out in the world of fashion. And so whatever it was, I remember thinking, I'm not shopping at Zara anymore, ever. And then you walk past at Sarah window and you think, oh, that looks nice. <laughs> do they, do, do boycotts work in fashion? And do they ever really happen? Um, I don't think they ever happen in any meaningful way. I think there has been change a- around working conditions. And I think that only happens when there's pressure from customers. So maybe it works a little. Um, I don't think in any organized way it really works. I- did people uh, people didn't have to boycott John Galliano because he had been removed from his job when right. he was saying offensive things, right? So there was no boycott there, right? They took advantage. They took they took care of the situation. Um, so, in other words, Zara isn't hurt by one person not shopping. <laughs> So the owner of Zara is one of the richest men in the world. Right. I mean, I think they're doing fine. I don't shop there. I won't post anything from Zara. I think oh. that they're a, I think they're bad people. Um, yeah, I'll say that. Yeah. I think that they're okay. I think that they're they don't treat their employees well. There have been accusations of sexism and anti Semitism. And there are so many other retailers to link to. Right. Why do them? It's right. hard because they, they do great photography. And the stuff looks fantastic. It looked good on the blog, but yeah, I don't do them anymore. And what about J. Crew? Where do you sit on what is going on with them? Poor you, sad J. Crew. Poor sad J. Crew. Yeah, it's not happening right now. I will still they still have certain classics that look all right, but they're really flailing right now looking and I hope, you know, it's happened to many brands. It happened to Levi's in a big way, it happened to Gap, it's still happening with Gap. God knows. And now it's happened with J. Crew, a brand that absolutely was on point and knew exactly what it was, just loses the thread. Mm-hmm. Well, I read a long article in Vanity Fair about how once Jenna Lyons left, they really haven't found a designer to make it work again. And they're sort of falling on old themes and tropes that, that she did. They have a new designer now, Chris Benz, who... I know nothing about. Do you think he's the kind of guy who can get it back to where it was or closer? Um, I don't know if it's even a question of him. In corporate culture, everything has to go through so many like levers and pulleys before a dress finally makes it to the stores. Um, and it could be that the culture itself is broken and that no talented designer could really make a difference there. It also takes a year, right, with a company that big to mm-hmm. see any change, even if the designs are different or appealing or whatever, right? Yeah. Okay, finally, let's just talk about jeans, okay? Hmm. Not with holes, but with without holes. I was told that 40 was the cutoff for jeans. I'm wearing jeans. I don't care. I like them. But maybe it's just because I'm unimaginative. But maybe it's just because they're comfortable and fun to run around in. Jeans are fantastic. My 82-year-old mother wears jeans, and she looks great in them. And I, I don't think there's any age limit. She wears a very clean pair of jeans. You know, they, they don't have any any holes of any kind. They're not distressed. They look nice. But um, no, there's no deadline for no cutoff date for jeans. I really don't think so. 
And if you wore something once when it was a new trend, people have told me you shouldn't wear it the second time around, like peasant blouses or... I find that most people don't have an appetite for a trend when it comes back if they were part of it the first time around. But I think if you want to embrace it, why not? I really like a peasant blouse. I can't help it. And peasant blouses are kind of, I mean, you could argue that they're classics. And you could argue that they never really went away. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> That's what I will say. And what about, is there something coming up on the horizon that you see that you think... This is really cool, and it's here to stay. Um, well, I've been very happy about clogs becoming a classic. That's been a really big one for me because I find them so comfortable and own so many pairs of them. Um, coming up on the horizon, oh, that's a hard one for me. Well, let me ask you this. All these bra companies that have started. Yes, like Third Love and Third everything. Third Love and Cup and... I don't know. There are a million of them. How did how does something like that happen in the viral world? One person sees it's happening and starts it, or all these women left their banking houses learning how to raise money and all decided, you know, the bra business is, is stupid and I'm going to make it better. I think it's a little bit of both. I do think it's a little bit of both. I think that... Um, it makes sense to women. There are certain items women hate going into stores and buying. Swimsuits, of course, are at the top of the list, followed directly by jeans. And I'm sure that bras are up there. It's something you want to try on in the privacy of your home and then return what doesn't work. So mm -hmm. there's something kind of intuitive about it. Have you tried any of those new bra companies? I have not. I've had requests from my readers for me to try them, but I have not. Oh, please. <laughs> I will. <laughs> uh, I'm always so fascinated when I I take a subway and I notice that all the ads that used to be for Dr. Zismore and for completing your education as a as a refrigeration expert, but they're now all for disruptors. They're all for food delivery and and linen mattresses, and mattresses yes. and you know, I guess fashion uh, any of these indie bra companies could be advertising in a second. Sure. But that's who that's that's what we know now. Yeah, it's and 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 it's so interesting to me because there's a whole generation that only knows that. Right. It's kind of amazing. That's true. It's true. Well, everything is changing, and in a way, nothing is changing. But I would I would say that you should trust your instincts, right? As a as a woman of a certain age or a girl of a certain age, trust your instincts and figure out what looks good rather than if it's... Right. A friend of mine calls it listening to your internal radar. And labels don't matter. I mean, you can find the same kind of high... You can find the same thing in a high price brand that you can find in a low price. Yeah, nobody looks less sophisticated than somebody wearing head-to-toe label clothes. Right. I think I saw a very chic friend yesterday and we went shopping and she bought an $1,100 dress, but she was wearing a dress from Zara and a jacket from Madewell. There you go. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So you prepared a really cool list of five <laughs> things and I would love it if you would share them. Sure. Um, my first one is pastes de nata 
which are these Portuguese custard tarts. They're absolutely delicious and um, are sort of the national breakfast food treat of Portugal. I just got back from Portugal and had them a lot while I was there um, and then discovered that a place right around the corner from me in Manhattan called Joey Bats makes these. So it's very exciting for me, and I'm very grateful for the existence of Pastéis de Nata. Not too sweet? Very sweet. Very sweet. But I can hand. I like a very sweet thing. And um, have you tried Joey Bots' version of these? Yes, I have. It is. I would say, like, I mean, you can you find them everywhere in Portugal. Every truck stop, every fancy hotel, just across the spectrum. They were like more. They're they're they were they were acceptable. They wow. were solid. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything you can mention that we would be familiar with that tastes like a pastiche de nut? Well, what they say in their advertising, in their sign in front of the building, of the store, is that it's like a croissant crossed with creme brulee. Oh, that doesn't sound terrible at all. It's very, it's very delicious. So, wow. And there will soon be probably a name like Cronut. To, <laughs> yes. to promote it. Yes. Excellent. Number two? Number two is the band Yola Tango. Um, they've been together since about 1984. I've been a fan of theirs since the 90s. Um, went to go see them play at Maxwell's out in Hoboken back in the day. And I'm terrible at describing what music sounds like, but they're kind of moody and atmospheric some of the time, kind of Popish and irreverent others of the time. They play great covers. They, they're famous for being able to cover any song that anybody in the audience shouts out to them. Oh, fun. Um, they play for the eight days of Hanukkah every night down at the Bowery Barroom every year. Wow. And I saw them this year, and they just, they've been adding a lot to my life lately. Oh, now, note to self, next Hanukkah. That's great. It's really fun. And if you're if you're an adult who wants to listen to adult rock music but is not ready to default to soft rock, they're really a good option. That is a very good point. No to self. Number three. <laughs> Number three is the commenters on my blog, Girls with a Certain Age. Um, I live alone. I work alone. I spend a lot of time alone. And knowing that my readers are out there all of the time... Um, chiming in is just a really great thing for me in my life. They are really funny. They're really clever. They're very, very supportive of each other. And and very rarely, I sort of braced myself as a former Condé Nast editor. I thought they're going to come after me in the comments like all the time. And it didn't happen. Somehow this amazing community of really lovely women um, showed up to read my blog. It makes me very happy. Well, I noticed yesterday with the hippie dresses, people were urging each other mm-hmm. to go for it. And I thought, that's nice. No, they actually have, some of them have met each other um, and gotten together. Um, have they outside. met you? I've met some of them. Yes, I have met some of them. I want to have a meetup, but it's it's a very complicated thing to try to plan. But yeah. I, I'm never disappointed when I meet a reader. They're always really great. Oh, fantastic. I know what you mean, because I'm essentially writing by myself, too, and doing stuff alone. And, well, that's why I like this podcast. But also, people don't understand what true loneliness is <laughs> until you've met a writer. No, it's true. Seriously. It's very true. Number four? Number four is my dogs, Sammy and Mister. 
Well, they keep you from feeling alone. They right? do. And I got a very nice boyfriend. He keeps me from feeling alone. That's nice. Um, but he's no dog. He's no dog. It's true. What kind of dogs are they? Sammy is a diabetic and... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The very simple word. Oh, I, I can't think of it. He's diabetic um, schnoodle. Uh-huh. And Mr. is a rescue from Thailand, actually. They have a terrible dog overpopulation problem in Thailand. And so there's an organization called the Soy Dog Foundation that brings dogs to other parts of the world where they can be adopted. And I wow. got Mr. through them. Wow. Um, they are, one of them is small. You know, Sammy is small. Mister is kind of medium-sized and a little skittish. He's a little bit of a street dog. He's a little bit of like those, you know, photos you see of dogs standing on dumpsters somewhere mm, in India. Yeah, with but, Sarah McLaughlin singing over. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's Mister. That's Mister. Um, but they're 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 really lights of my life. I really adore them. And I'm sure the feeling is mutual. We had a dog. He ju- he died in December. Oh, I'm sorry. That's yeah, awful. really rough. Now I feel lonely, lo- really lonelier. If I hadn't had a dog, I wouldn't have felt so lonely after the dog. You feel their absence. When their predecessor died, I was I was devastated. Yeah. Oh, wow. And number five is somebody who I think is fantastic. Yes, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, creator of Killing Eve and Fleabag and before that, Crashing. Um, she's only 33 years old. She is. She is. I looked it up yesterday. She is so damn talented and has such a knack for creating these transgressive, complicated, weird women who we can't help but fall in love with and root for. She's unafraid to say things and, 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 and have her characters say things and do things that you just don't see on TV. But mostly she just creates these really interesting female characters. I went to see her um, when she performed Fleabag at the oh, really? Soho Rep. Yes. And uh, she's so appealing. And she, I mean, the mark of a great actor, she just doesn't seem to be acting at all. She's just... She's at ease on her skin. Yes. And she, you know, that character whose name you don't find out for a while, or if ever. I haven't yeah. seen the second season of Fleabag. But that character is not likable. I mean, but you like her. Yeah, you like her because she's because she she's is, kind of honestly bad. Yeah, she is. And she's done something. If you watch the first season, she's done something horrible. Horrible. But um, and in the second season, you really do fall a little bit more in love with her, I have to say. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Well, Kim, thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. It really has been a treat talking to you and I have many more questions that I'll pepper you with afterwards. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with your host Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week was editor, author, and journalist Kim France, who writes the blog Girls of a Certain Age and is the founding editor or was the founding editor of Lucky Magazine. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at KimFranceNYC.com com or no.com 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 <laughs> at kim france nyc next week i'll be joined by lisa grunwald author of the new book time after time which was a really good read you can subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts spotify stitcher google play music and youtube this podcast is produced in new york city by the field and my engineer is jimmy regan Until next week, 
Stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 